it's really important to me to facilitate the empowerment of the youth voice or the younger voices because I feel like my generation and generations before me, you know, like we really need to prepare people who are younger and have a different vantage point of the issues that that we that we care about because because they're going to be the champions. They're going to be the leaders in the space. Welcome to Dream Mentorship Podcast. Here at Dream Mentorship, our goal is to inspire women with big dreams who want to learn about and utilize ways in which to be successful boss women in their chosen fields. Tune in each week as we discuss different versions of success with various industry bosses, moms, students, and women in general who are able to take their lives and businesses to the next level. We are here to provide everyone with information on how to live your own dreams, because those dreams are valid. Without further ado, welcome your incredible host for this podcast, Mac Jane Creighton. Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's to today's podcast. Of course, I am your host, Mac Jane Creighton, and today our guest has more than 20 years of professional social justice experience as an educator, trainer, performer, and administrator. Her journey towards advocacy was inspired during her freshman year when another student, a white male, called her a speak. Uh, today, Eva is an, education, an educator, speaker, and trainer on social justice, bias awareness, and leadership education. From former keynote speeches, new student orientation workshops, and even a one-person play, Ava has a phenomenal story. And I want to get right into it. So let's get into it. Welcome to the podcast, Ava. Thank you so much. Awesome. We're excited. And I just want to, you know, get to kind of know more about you. Um, you have a lot of fun stuff going on. <laughs> you have um, a fun job, I would say. So tell me about, you know, what led to this? How did you become an, an educator, a speaker and trainer on social justice, um, bias awareness and leadership education? Well, you, you, the story begins probably being um, a person of color. I am Puerto Rican identify as Latinx, um, and really growing up in a space that was predominantly people like me. It was I grew up in a community that was mostly Latino, Latina, and uh, African-American with very few white people, but like we all kind of shared a really small community experience. And then when I went to college, um, my first year at college, which was, you know, this, my school was about 40,000 students you know, it was quite um, a transition, not only because of the size of the school, but the, the fact that I was a first generation college um, goer and um, it was the first time that I left home. And as you mentioned, um, you know, within my first couple of days of being at school, being really in class, I was called a racial slur, a spick, um, which at the time I didn't really know a lot about what the word meant. I knew it was a put down. I knew it was a weapon. It was tried to be used with me as a weapon. Um, and like a lot of other people, my responses to these moments or to moments where I'm uncertain is I go to the intellectual place and then the feelings place second. And so it immediately drew a lot of questions for me. And so um, I had conversations with my mom, P 
people in my residence hall, you know, other professionals on the campus. And I really just began an intellectual journey and then yearned for really the skill sets and the opportunity to create change and have conversations that mattered, which, you know, so out of being this, this personal exploration, it went quickly to my academic exploration and then a mm. professional exploration in, in, in marrying the deep desire to create change in the world. Well, that's that's an incredible story. Um, I want to, you know, pull back a little bit. You know, 20 years ago, the world that we are seeing today is not the way it looks right now. Um, so I can't even imagine, you know, you telling your family or your academic um, advisor that, hey, I want to go into social justice. What was that like? How did you decide on a major um, you know, how, how did you go about that trend? Because right now it makes a little bit more sense. You know, if someone says, Hey, I want to go into social justice, people can grasp, you know, somewhat how, where you're trying to go. But 20 years ago, I can imagine that was totally different. Oh, it was, it was totally different. There wasn't that word, the term social justice didn't really even exist. I mean, we were talking about diversity and tolerance was still the term that we were using at the time. Oh man, I feel old. But you know, like that really was a pathway. <laughs> like my my major was English and sociology mm. with a minor in Africana Latino studies. And the reason why I had majored and minored in the ways that I did, because at the time you can you could use certain classes for both majors. And so I just and all of my classes involved race and ethnicity, gender. Um, we didn't, there wasn't a lot of opportunity to talk about class. But I just had this opportunity to do this, like I said, like intellectual exploration from very personal, from a very personal space. And I learned then um, from a feminist, Barbara Fields, that the person is the political. And that really resonated with me because I recognized that who I am as a person in the body that I that I walk around in has real political implications, right? Not just like politics and elections, but like in terms of how we interact with each other. And so like what I've been really excited about is the evolution of our thinking, the, the honing, the finessing, the digging into the nuance of our identities, our culture, you know, what we understand now is structural oppression. And so my studies began then to think about structural oppression, but the language we used changed over time. And so I actually, um, really truly began to to do that full exploration in graduate school at the new I went to the new school and um for and for a master's degree in sociology with the concentration in race and ethnicity in the United States and so like I that was at the point for me where things started to really change because that's when I started getting into the training space the the implementing workshop space although from a career perspective my job was working in the university because I needed to pay. I needed to help support myself and I needed to help pay for my own mm -hmm. education. I mean, my mother and my father loved me and supported education, but didn't have the economic resources to contribute in the ways that other families might have had at the time. I, but I wasn't going to let not having money be the barrier mm -hmm. to not getting the education that, that I, I found to be necessary. So really my education, my career was just working in the university. Like, so I went from 
in graduate school being helping the international student advisor advise international students to mm -hmm. working in a media studies program, coordinating financial aid and programming to help support graduate students in media, to uh, initiating an office of multicultural student affairs and a gender and sexuality resource center. And I think I didn't really hit that stride until my thirties. It's been race and ethnicity and justice the whole way through. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought up your education because I was going to mention um, your master's degree in sociology uh, from the New School for Social Research in New York City. Um, that was fun. I, I just I, I I looked at that. I was like, that is pretty cool to do that. Uh, but something that struck out to me about you is that. Um, the lessons and the things that you do right now in terms of your speaking um, came more, like you're saying, from the self-exploration and from the thousands of people you've worked with. Um, and um, and how, so my question is, how did that shape, you know, the work that you do today? And I want you to also talk about, you know, the orientations and the things that you do, your speaking, um, that part of your life. The social justice work and exploration that I do is my work, but it's also a lifestyle. And so, you know, I spend so much of my time, a lot of my time, just engaging with, you know, other people who are interested in this. And social media really has revved up the opportunity to stay, get engaged, stay engaged, um, and to continue my learning. And so I also have a really high value on youth and youth culture specifically. And so um, it's really important to me to facilitate the empowerment of the youth voice or the younger voices, because I feel like my generation and generations before me, you know, like we really need to prepare people who are younger and have a different vantage point of the issues that we care about because, because they're going to be the champions. They're going to be the leaders in the space. So a lot of my work is really just tailored to facilitating the empowerment and really even like engaging in healing, like healing tends to be a, uh, it's tending to be of late, a really essential component to mm -hmm. my work because the impact, because what we know now about the impact of our, our trauma um, in the way that we interact with each other, the way we show up in the workplace, the way we show up for our families. So that is tending to be something that I care a lot about. And I wanna bring it to the to, to younger people who are emerging in their independence, they're emerging in their, their empowerment and hopefully also emerging as leaders in whatever respective career they're gonna be in. Yes, that's really powerful that you brought that up um, because healing is so important. There's a lot going on in our society today. Um, you know, if you flip off, <laughs> turn on the news, there's always something going on. Um, there's always some um, bad news out here, out there, especially with the whole COVID-19 situation. Um, there is, you know, from domestic violence to, of course, um, protests that we have seen over the summer and all the other things that's going on in our community. How do you, you know, how do you bring up that topic of healing, you know, to say, you know what, let's, let's forgive, let's, let's, um, you know, give more grace to people um, to, to be able to live that life. Because it's kind of hard sometimes to say, you know what, I forgive, I give grace, um, I, I'm going to heal. And healing sometimes doesn't happen until we get to that place where we can say, you know what, I forgive or I give grace. When I think of healing, I am thinking about zooming out from a moment 
Mm -hmm. right? And pulling the perspective broadly, more broadly, right? So many people are looking at interracial or racial dynamics, right? And sometimes the focus is on the specific moment and not the duration of this pain, right? And so when we think about mm -hmm. structures, think about historical ideas that have remained constant over time. And so like looking at police violence, for example, and right. the impact of watching videos over and over again, I really feel like it's important for folks to like really make choices about what is important to them. Like, so some folks have experienced racial trauma and the way that it manifests for them is you know they get angry in the moment and they and they are not able to let go of that anger in ways to, to create more constructive dynamics within their family or within their relationships or in their workplaces so when i think of healing i think let's zoom out a little bit and like what is your intention is it if it is if your intention is to create change then what are the ways that you need to manage what's happening for you emotionally so that you can be as constructive as your intentions are. All right. And what does breathing have to do with that? Really giving permission to like to get off of social media or to mm -hmm. mute certain hashtags or to, to be with a group of people who that, you, that could remind you that you are loved and care about. You know, right. I tell my like African-American and black or black identified um, colleagues, you have permission to call out black. Like you don't have mm -hmm. to be a part of this labor at all. And me as a light skin Latinx person, I'm going to hold more than, than what you think is fair. I'm going to hold that mm -hmm. weight because right now in this space with all these videos going around and like it feels, if that weight for you feels heavier than as a person who sees me as sees, sees myself as somebody wanting to change, I'm going to pick up, I'm going to pick up more than, than I might usually. And I'm going to keep it going right. front and front. It. And I'm going to talk about anti-blackness. That's my load. That's my job. Mm -hmm. And that's how I co-create healing for people who need space to breathe and to mm -hmm. be. That is so, so important. Uh, I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit. I'm really, really interested in your one person plays. Um, you know, you talk about, um, you use that to educate people uh, about the common jokes and slurs and taunts and punches about that's connected to, um, or rather connecting the dots between bias and hate. Can you talk about that? I don't know if you have any performances coming up who would like to know about that. Well, the, the one person play really came out of this outgrowth of feeling unchallenged in my, in my consulting work. So I should say that I've always held a full-time job or for the most part, I've always held a full-time job. And then my consulting work has been something that I've done up over and above my paid employment, my salaried employment. And um, after a certain number of years, like I, I felt a little unchallenged and I felt like I wanted to kind of t carry the message of, of the necessity to speak up about racial bias gender bias, sexuality, you know, bias against people um, with different sexual orientations or uh, gender identities. And so I created the one person play really to challenge myself to do this work in a different way. 
you know, and so I did that play quite a number of years. And then I found myself feeling like um, the intensity of the play didn't serve the impact that I wanted. So I do the play now. I don't perform it a lot, but when I do perform it, it's done um, with theater in the round with um, some preparation on the front end of the play and some like a workshop at the end of the play so that we can process um, and engage in somatic healing, which is about breathing and about really processing and metabolizing the emotions that are coming up. Because this really is about looking at racial slurs, jokes, the things that are intended to be jokes but are not funny at all. Right. Um, how normalized they are in our society. And I use my, my life, but also some hate crimes that at the time were being um, in society that we were talking a lot about, mostly the, the murders of James Byrd and Matthew Shepard. Um, but I haven't performed it in a long time. And just like in the spirit of like my evolution as a professional, I've started to do transformational coaching, which is like one-on-one um, coaching to help individuals who want to grow in their allyship or grow in their accompliceship or grow in their leadership in um, anti-racism or anti-oppressive leadership. So I've been doing a lot of um, transformational coaching. And so that's been, that's probably been the most rewarding work of late, you know, doing those. I love doing the workshops. I love doing my performance keynotes. Um, my keynotes are less about me being at a podium and, me, you know, has a lot to do with music and dancing and, <laughs> and joking and because that's my vibe. Um, but the transformational coaching piece is probably what's feeding my soul these days as a professional in the field. That's awesome. Tell us a little bit about your life as a mom and as a wife. Um, what do your kids, how do they see your work? Um, and what does your husband um, think about the things that you do? What's kind of funny is that I am not a mom. Um, oh. so I'm almost 50 years old and I got married late in life. Um, and before, and you know, I was very career oriented and I didn't start the, you know, my thinking about getting married or being married until later in life. And so some of those decisions, like I think I would have not, I think I know I wanted to have a family, but I timed out and it simply wasn't available to me as an option. I have to say it was painful at first, but now I've kind of grown into the acceptance of it. And because of that, I'm a rock star Titi, auntie mm -hmm. to my nieces and nephews, who I, my, which my siblings have lovingly allowed me to claim. And so I claim them proudly. They're mine. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I'm the auntie that showers them with affection and love and accountability and um and because of that you know because i'm not a parent i can afford better vacations and better sneakers <laughs> uh, um and really be able to give in the to the community in a way that i might not otherwise um but my husband like you know is it he continues to be in awe of my work he doesn't understand it um all the time because you know i i i am tired quite a lot because i have a full-time job and then i have right. this work and this work I'm probably doing maybe 15 to 20 hours a week on top of my other job um, because it's just meaningful work for me. Yeah. Um, but he loves the fact that I am connected to my community and this is our most meaningful work. All of our charitable donations goes to social justice because it's important to us. 
So he recognizes this is part of how we donate and part of what we give because we can. Amazing. My time, right? Like your time is yeah. what, that's what you have. That's what you should give. That's awesome. I must, I must say you do a great job being an auntie because that really, I really thought they were your kids. <laughs> so um, pardon me. Claim them. That. No, it's okay. I claim them. <laughs> a nursery through third, a nursery school, three-year-olds to uh -huh. middle school in my full-time, you know, paid employment, like salaried employment. Um, and in that work, like I got 400 babies, right? In that way. So, yeah. you know, I'm good with nobody being at my house at this point. That's great. Um, I want to ask one final question. Um, and um, can you speak on some of the real raw moments you've encountered with people which um, that were not so keen on being, you know, based on your work, some real, your personal experiences with diversity? Um, are you saying in response to my work? Not necessarily in response to your work, but you as a person outside of the, you know, the other students who made a joke about how you looked. Um, are there other, you know, you're traveling in your work. Um, have there been moments where, you know, you were not accepted to speak in a place or in based on how you look and how did that affect you, if that makes sense? It totally makes sense. And we can sit here all day and talk about these things. Because what I know for sure is that the more your racial consciousness about how these systems land and impact you as Black, Indigenous, or other people of color, like the more awareness you have, the more you notice when these things are happening. I am, my husband is Black. He's African-American from the South. And he, and being with him in our daily lives, is like, you know, watching and constantly in fear for him. I have seen, you know, I have seen, I have had the experience of going to a store and having, you know, no problems, nobody attending. And I've had the experience of being followed in a store because he's with me. Like I said, mm -hmm. like, so my, I present as light skin, right? And in, right. In, in the Northeast, I think you can easily codify me like, look at me visually and say, she must be some sort of Latina, right? Mm. But in the Midwest, where there are fewer Latinas, like, they may have some wonders about it. When I go to the South, they think I'm African-American, right? Or some kind mm -hmm. of with a blended, with a blended ancestry. Um, and so, like, it really depends on where I am in the country. I've had people verbally accost me because of my work, like, after a workshop, or after a keynote, like, you know, angrily coming to me and saying, you know, you are saying these bad things about white people, which is not true, right? I come mm -hmm. from love-centered work. I come from a healing community-oriented work. The community that I want to grow is one where we can say good things, we can say honest things to each other that may be hard, but we hold each other with caring accountability. And so, like, you know, the shaken fist, you know, veins in the forehead kind of experiences I've had quite a lot. And I've experienced these things in the workplace all the time with people feeling like the way that I converse, you know, is not, it doesn't sound educated. I have a lot of education and I have a lot of experience. And sometimes mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, what people really, like I, what I have to do a lot is trot out my resume of experience because I also present as more as younger than 
then other people codify me, you know, like I, I say, God bless the melanin in my heritage. And, <laughs> you know, and but so people constantly want to denigrate or want to, and I don't think it's necessarily intentional. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean that the impact doesn't hurt all the same, or, you know, like I go from, you know, being given grace, as you say, to being a little annoyed, to being yeah. irritated, to being, let me tell you something about yourself right now. Mm. And so I, I, I don't often go to the, let me tell you about yourself right now. What I do now is gather the allies in the room and say, did you notice this? And to say, one way that you can be an ally for me is to snatch your homegirl up and mm. make sure that she understands that what she did was a racial microaggression and invite her to do something different. And so like, I feel like what I've been, where, where I am as a person and as a professional is I feel more empowered to cultivate allyship around me so that I don't always have to go there. That is but, so you know, good. Well, being yeah. Puerto Rican, I will go there. I <laughs> to, but I don't want to. Right. <laughs> I don't think any of us ever want to go there. You know, it's always that, you know, question of, um, I should just bite my tongue and not say anything. Um, but you know, grace is also important, but you can't bite your tongue and hurt yourself in perpetuity. Right. You can hold the moment. And what I say in my workshop is that you don't have to act in the moment, but it's important for you to act like you have to, as an individual, process what happened, metabolism, metabolize it, right? Break it down and use it in some way. And so whether you're, whether you're journaling, whether you're talking to somebody who you regularly vent with and like get yourself to a place emotionally where you're not injuring yourself or carrying a weight on your soul and on your spirit, because that will hurt you in the long run. And so that's the important piece about healing and that's the important piece about this racial equity work is really about figuring out how do we have these conversations and remaining whole so that we're not hurting ourselves and we are not passing on this pain to generations to the generations to come because this stuff is passed on genetically and we don't want to do that anymore right well, that's it. Thank you so much, Eva, for joining us on this conversation. You are heard her. This is such an inspirational um, story, and it affects every one of us. It doesn't matter um, whether you are African-American or Caucasian or Nigerian or from any other part of the world. Um, this conversation about race, it's it's ongoing, and I'm glad that we can have that conversation to talk more about love, talk more about grace, talk more about forgiveness, and also to say, you know what, we need to educate each other. And just like Eva um, has just said, we have to also metabolize it so you are not hurting and causing more pain to yourself. So I hope this conversation today has been helpful to you in one way or the other. Uh, if you enjoyed listening to Eva, uh, you can always find her on her social media platforms. Um, go check her out. And if you need to book her for a speech or a one-person play or workshop, uh, a keynote address or professional or uh, staff development, you can head onto her website, everveigerdiversity.com um, to book her as well. Thank you so much, Eva, for joining us on the conversation Thank today. Thank you it was so fun much having for the invitation. You.
people i hope you have a wonderful time listening to this podcast don't forget to share with your friends and and if you have anything to say to us you can leave us a comment we would definitely love to hear from you all right until next time thank you for listening to dream mentorship podcast with your host the amazing boss lady herself mac jane creighton If you liked what you just heard, you can head on over to dreammentorship.org to learn more about Dream Mentorship and what we do as a nonprofit organization. Remember to tune in again next week for more Boss Lady Realness. This podcast has been recorded and edited by Jenna Cohen.